Are you? Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about you, Irene? Are you glad you hooked up with Joe? At this moment, wow. That's good. Too honest. The reason I ask is there are two office, church office weddings, real cheap, real, no expenses. And uh, they, they, uh, they took. All right, Hebrews chapter, just forgive me for my weirdness. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy are they who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, all you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And a verse that's been kind of hovering over my mind lately has been in our very own homily called Hebrews, and that's 12, Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. That's generally speaking. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? Submit to the Father of spirits and live. Reminds me of Ezekiel 16, when he came upon Israel as a newborn infant kicking in her blood. He said to her, live. And to the bones in the valley of dry bones, God told the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, son of man, Tell them to live. And so the very key to our life is our submission to the Father of spirits. We are embodied spirits, and God our Father is our Father, the Father of our spirits, where our central being is. And, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross prayed, Into your hands I entrust my spirit. I think that's the best translation. So when we're going through things in life, and we often do, when some of those things we go through have the potential of being very challenging and very agonizing, we submit to our Father, the Father of our spirits, and we live. And he gives us peace, and he gives us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that's what our disposition must be every time we come to the word of God, is to submit to the Father of spirits and live as a result of what we hear. For my words are spirit and they are life. So every time the word of God is proclaimed, the Lord Jesus is commanding life, life eternal. Today I want to consider a subject that we will approach with hopefully the due reverence, called gifts, plural, and the gift, singular. Gifts and the gift. 
And that's why I want you to go to Hebrews 8, starting at verse 1. Our translation, our very own Telestai Phalanx translation, says this. Now the sum of what we're saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. Pitched by the Lord, not man. This is the doing of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. The theme of the superiority of Jesus over Aaron, the priest, the archpriest of the Old Covenant, is sustained throughout Hebrews, and it remains in Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, as is his superiority to angels, also who are servants or leiturgoi, and his superiority to Moses, that theme is sustained, Moses as a mediator, Mesites, as we're going to see in 8.6. The tent pitched by the Lord and not man is called Alethines. You're going to see this in a printed version, so I'm not going to take the time to do all this on the board because I have a lot to say, but Alethines. And Alethines means real, genuine, authentic. Here, Alethines doesn't mean true as opposed to false, as if the tent on earth was false or somehow inauthentic, but it means true or genuine as opposed to earthly. So it doesn't mean true as opposed to false, as if the heavenly tent is true and the earthly representation is false, but it means genuine in the sense of heavenly as opposed to the symbolic earthly. That earthly tent was merely a pattern or a type of the heavenly tent. The earthly tent was not false as opposed to the true or unreal. In fact, the earthly tent was in fact a divinely authorized representation referring to the heavenly antitype. And so if you'll look with me secondly to Hebrews 9.24 where you see these themes being sustained throughout this homily. I'm always amazed at the level of attentiveness of the biblical authors to sustain a theme in their writing or in their mind over the course sometimes of several chapters. Hebrews 9.24 says, and again this is our translation, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation. And the word there is actually is used as antitupa or antitype, for where we get directly that word antitype, antitupa. I will write that up there, A-N-T-I-T-U-P-A, antitupa. And antitupa, or antitype, when usually the U's in Greek, we drop them down to a Y in the English, so it would be antitype. Antitype 
in this particular case means a symbolic representation and corresponds to a higher heavenly referent. Antitype can be used either as one, the, re the referent, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T, the thing referred to, referent, to which a symbolic earthly representation corresponds. That's how we've been generally using it throughout our Hebrew study. Secondly, it can be the representation of a higher heavenly reality as here in Hebrews 9.24. In any case, the main point is, I might as well write this up here since I got it, Alethinon, A-L-E-T-H-I-N, note the plural ending, on, Alethinon. And that's some, that is the true, the heavenly reality. In this case, it indicates reality, with a capital R, on an eternal, not merely corporeal plane. Science has recently been discovering the tripartite cosmos and referring back again to some of the scholastic people like Thomas Aquinas and then back to Aristotle and Plato for its metaphysics, something that is too much of a challenge for scientism today. Scientism is one of the great reasons why the zeitgeist is where it is today and why people have been perishing and even descending to the level of the animal in packs and predatory ways. So we're going to be having to hit that sooner or later. So the universe has three levels at least. One is the physical level. That's the only level that physics knows about. And they can't even really comprehend the metaphysical level. The aviternal level, which is discovered by a study of metaphysics and also by the word of God, of course, and then the eternal. And so we're dealing with levels of the universe and it is a tripartite universe. So we're talking here about the reality on an eternal, not a corporeal plane. The holy places here also, might as well do another A word because this is an art, article T-O-N, again plural, and then H-A-G-I-O-N, plural, ton hagion, this time hard breathing. The holy places, ton hagion in Hebrews 8.2 is a plural. I just want you to get this together because we're going to do gifts, plural, and the gift, singular. Plurality going to, is going to indicate a kind of a weakness. Singularity is going to indicate a kind of a supernatural strength. The holy places in Hebrews 8.2 is a plural construct to denote the sanctuary, otherwise known as the tabernacle or the tent which in the earthly representation or symbol was divided into two sections. The forecourt, F-O-R-E-C-O-R-U-T, C-O-U-R-T, and the holy of holies. The plural construct, ton hagion, or hagia, made by human hands, is used again here in Hebrews 9.24 where it says, For the Messiah has not entered into Hagia, holy places, 
made by human hands. So you see the theme is sustained from Hebrews 8.2 all the way up to 9.24. The Messiah, that's Christ, has not entered into holy places made by human hands. He didn't do what Aaron did or the sons of Aaron or the Levitical archpriests through every one of the Yom Kippurs for hundreds of years. But he did not enter into holy places made by human hands, a mere representation of the true. Ton alithinon. But into heaven. And there's another word. I guess I, as long as I'm here. Another plural. The heaven, which is really T-O-N. And then uranon. O-U-R-A-N-O-N. In fact, this is a singular, in fact, instead. Ton Uranon. This is where I get the word Uranopolis for the heavenly city, which will be the last thing I probably teach on, the heavenly city. Let Jerusalem come into your mind, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Maybe that'll be the last thing some of us see as we are on our way out. Many people have visions of the second coming of Christ in their moments of death. Others have visions of this heavenly city, and we can let this heavenly city enter into our mind even now as we are citizens of the heavenly city. Messiah has not entered into holy places made by human hands, a mere representation of the authentic or the true, but into heaven itself. The intensive accusative masculine singular pronoun being itself plus the plural construct for the heavens, now to appear, now appearing, as we say. A celebrity at a particular venue may have a marquee out front, now appearing. The Rolling Stones, as they get behind their walkers and come in and do another concert, now to appear, or we could say now appearing in the presence of God for us in the immediate presence of God for us. Hebrews 9:24 is what I call it's part of what I call the apocalypse of the three appearings of Messiah, the apocalypse of the three appearings of the Messiah, 9:24 to 28 and we'll hit that someday maybe. Jesus the Messiah has appeared, Hebrews 9:26 to 28 in his incarnation, he did, appeared once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Get a hold of that word, himself. The gift, himself. The Messiah has appeared once to bear the sins of many, which is the sins of all in Hebrews 9.28. He has effected the universal alteration of the human situation in his death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation. Jesus the Messiah does appear, he is now appearing in Hebrews 9.24 before his father in his immediate presence for us. He makes intercession for us in this time in between the alteration of the situation and the alteration of the human and cosmological condition which is coming with his second advent. Call this Jesus' priestly promeity as we did last week, his priestly promeity. His intercession for us at God's right hand, his now appearing. 
He will appear when every eye sees him, as Roman Revelation 1.7 says. Hebrews 9.28, he will appear and bring about the alteration of the human and cosmological condition. That's called salvation. The alteration of the human condition and the alteration of the universal condition as the ultimate end denoted by redemption. And in his second coming, the parousia, the final expression of the salvation which Jesus himself embodies. So there is one plural construct denoting a singular reality in Hebrews 8.2. Holy places equals holy place or sanctuary. In Hebrews 9.24, there are three plural constructs that are translated as singular realities. Holy places, hagia, translates correctly as singular sanctuary. The true, that's the plural, ton alethinon, indicates the true and the real tent, the singular reality called the tent or the tabernacle. And the heavens, I'll go back one more time to correct that, ton uranon, translated correctly in the singular, heavens. Now, there's a larger interaction, and this is what I want to do, and I've done all this to lead up to this. There's a larger interaction between the plural and the singular concepts of the words gifts and sacrifices. Gifts and sacrifices. That is, those that are offered by the priests and the archpriests of the Levitical order, or the order of Aaron. And that interplay is between those gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural, and the one gift, singular, and the one sacrifice, once and for all, of Jesus, our great archpriest. In fact, this is very important for where we're going in Hebrews because the contrast between plural sacrifices and the singular sacrifice is thematic all the way through Hebrews 10.18. So right now we're in the central expositional section of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.19 begins the central exhortation of Hebrews. What we're doing here and now in this message today is juxtaposing heavenly with gift and identifying the singular heavenly gift with Jesus Christ himself. Now again, some of you may benefit greatly by reading what I just told you in in so many words when this message comes out in print. Hebrews 8.3, you ever think we'd get there? We did. You see, every archpriest, every archpriest, that means whether they're in Aaron's order or in this new Melchizedekan order in which there's only one person, Jesus Christ. Every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural. Therefore, It is necessary that this priest, speaking specifically of Jesus Christ, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, also have 
something to offer. Does he have something to offer? Oh, yeah. Let's look at it again then. You see every archpriest, let's make that every archpriest in the Levitical order is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, plural. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. And this harks back to Hebrews 5.1, if you remember those days, which says every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. This archpriest, or if you prefer, high priest, Jesus Christ, had to have something to offer. Just as the high priests of the Levitical or the Aaronic order had something to offer. What the archpriests of the former order had to offer were animal sacrifices prescribed under the law of Moses, which served as shadows. Keep a hold of this word, too. You're going to see this again. Skia, S-K-I-A, skia, shadows. And that's going to be, we'll see that in Hebrews 8, 5 of what this archpriest would offer, mere shadows of what this archpriest would offer, Jesus Christ. The blood of animals offered by the archpriests of the former order was of estimable value. You could estimate the value, and it had some value, some estimable value, and it had limited efficacy, limited efficacy, because it served to ritually that is, according to the flesh, cleanse the people of Israel, Hebrews 9.13. There's a lot of people that like to brag about being Calvinists. And one of the points of Calvinism is the L in tulip, T-U-L-I-P, tulip, five-point Calvinism. The L is limited atonement. And once there was a debate, I think, between Wesley and Whitfield, two American preachers and revivalists, and I believe it was Whitfield, he accused, he said, if you believe in the unlimited atonement, then you're in danger of believing in universalism. And I don't know if Whitfield took acceptance to, or exception to that, but I wouldn't have. Unlimited atonement comes to me through the scriptures when it says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I call that unlimited atonement. So I know I've been picking on Calvin a lot lately, but he deserves picking on. He's been a bully for years, for centuries. It's time to slap him around a little. Now, this doesn't take away from the many good things he said, the many good things Augustine said, the many good things Aquinas said, but... When these guys are good, they're very good. When they're bad, they're very bad. But we have to hold fast to the good. That's what I say when we read any book on theology. I always have to keep that in mind in 1 Thessalonians 5. Test everything, hold fast to the good. In Job, taste everything before you digest and swallow it. Discern, discern, discern. And it used to keep me away from books on theology because I knew some weird things were said by certain authors. But now I'm just dialectic with them. I go 
toe-to-toe with them on things and accept what's good because there's so much good in Aquinas, so much good even in Augustine, and that's hard to say, and in other theologians. And some of the ones I'm studying now have some of the best I've ever read and some things that I can't fit into the scriptures. I simply reject them. And we used to call that eat the chicken, spit out the bones. Watch out for those bones. They're sharp. They'll make you choke. So what this archpriest had to offer was something of inestimable, inestimable value and limitless efficacy. Limitless efficacy. For he offered himself. His own life, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered to or served, but to serve and to give his life, suke, as a ransom for many. We know that many is all of humanity. Jesus was using a humble understatement there, and in Matthew 20, 28, he offered his body in Hebrews 10, 10, according to the will of God, to bring about our sanctification, Sanctification, the word holiness, is related to wholeness. Therefore, sanctification is related to completion, and the whole Christ will be getting to that, and that'll get to the heart of Hebrews. And so the blood of animals had estimable value and limited efficacy because it ritually purified the people of Israel in Hebrews 9.13. But what this archpriest had to offer was something of inestimable value, and limitless efficacy. He offered his own body, his own blood, Matthew 26, 28, which he called my blood of the covenant. Covenant is going to come up very soon in Hebrews 8 and be the subject of the second half of that chapter. So the new covenant and the new covenant community, the penultimate end denoted by redemption, is coming up. His blood in Matthew 20. 6.28, Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 13.12, Hebrews 12.24 calls it the blood of a new and everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13.20, etc. Because his blood is not to ritually purify the flesh of Israelites, but to make purification of, for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2, unlimited efficacy. And... Not only that, but to purge the conscience of the New New Covenant community, the members of the New Covenant community, purge them from dead works to serve the living God. And that means to serve him day and night as temple servants, Hebrews 9.14 compared to Revelation 7.15. Our most important ministry is not to people, but to God on behalf of people. As priests, and that's also, as priests, is the invisible impact that redeems history from its periods of decline before catastrophe happens. So what I'm teaching you today, literally, if it's something that we submit to the Father of Spirits about and receive, is part of the doctrine that redeems history and redeems history in our present time from a present state of decline. Because it will yield to your priesthood, and your priesthood will be approaching the throne of grace day and night, and your 
to receive help in time of need for all people, even those in authority, and all people, 1 Timothy 2.1. The reason this archpriest is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29, the world being the cosmos, indicating a cosmological as well as an anthropological direction and end of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The reason for his incarnation, his life lived in obedience to the Father and submission to the Father of Spirits, which is his heavenly Father. The reason for his obedience, even to the extent of death by crucifixion, even to his extent of the death of the cross, where he endured the wages of sin for all, and his Burial, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, his present session. All of that is not only to bring salvation anthropologically to mankind, but cosmologically to the whole universe, the whole tripartite universe, of which man is a microcosm. That's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24, which Jesus secured by his own blood, not through the blood of others, like the blood of animal sacrifices, but through his own blood, he discovered, obtained, found eternal redemption for us. Of this same archpriest, it was said in Hebrews 1.3, right at the kickoff of this passage, in its exordium, it says, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Notice then in Hebrews 8.3, where we are now in our exegesis, the plural constructs, plurals, gifts, and offerings. Because these plurals will be set in contrast to a singular gift with a capital G and a singular offering with a capital O. Singular offering, singular gift. That is Jesus Christ himself. In my notes, I have all caps for H-I-M-S-E-L-F, himself. For today, then, we're not going to consider so much the word offering, but gifts. Let's consider specifically the interplay of the words gifts and the gift. And we'll see that plurality itself connotes the weaknesses of the sacrifices offered under the law. And thus, the comparative weakness of the law itself. Under the law, many sacrifices. Many sacrifices, a plurality indicating weakness. The law was weak in that through the flesh. And so God, what God did, God did what the law couldn't do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin itself in the flesh of the incarnate son of God. Romans 8.3, that's big stuff, that's good stuff. Taste and see, that's good. So we'll see that plurality itself connotes the weakness, many priests, many sacrifices, many offerings. And we'll see that plurality itself connotes the weakness of the sacrifices offered under the law and thus the comparative weakness of the law itself powerless as it was on account of the flesh. 
when compared with what God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and with reference to sin, that is, with reference to its removal, he condemned sin, not human beings. He condemned sin, not us. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh of his enfleshed eternal son who became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, and we have been. Romans 8, 3b, connected with Hebrews 9, 26, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and ancillary to it all is Galatians 3, 13, where he was made a curse for every person. In 2 Corinthians 9, 15, let's fan this out a little bit. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. The Apostle Paul concludes a section of 2 Corinthians that he started in 2 Corinthians 8.1. Those two chapters are both rightly said to be about giving, Christian giving, where he recounted how the grace of God, ten karin tutheu, had been revealed in the wealth of the generosity of the churches of Macedonia, northern Greece, toward the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, in southern Greece, Achaia brags about the saints and the churches of upper Greece called Macedonia, Philippi, and other cities, and said the grace of God was revealed in the wealth of their generosity to the persecuted saints. And so he's appealing to the Corinthians, many of whom were extraordinarily wealthy people. He concludes that section as he began it, by speaking of the grace of God. There's a wonderful inclusio there. Charis to theu, theo rather. This time attributing grace to God in thanksgiving for what? In 2 Corinthians 9.15, for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God after all said and done for his unspeakable gift. Indescribable, unimaginable, incomprehensible gift. There's gift singular. Jesus Christ himself is that unspeakable gift. And the triune God is the giver. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his son. John 3.16 The son so loved us that he gave himself. Galatians 2.20, and the Spirit so loved that the Son offered himself to God through the eternal Spirit. In Hebrews 9.14, the same Holy Spirit who was given to us and who pours the love of God out in our hearts. In Hebrews 9.14 and Romans 5.5, whose personal friendship with us and personal companionship with us is sanctifying or making of us into whole human beings. The tent pitched by men involves earthly priests who offer gifts, plural, prescribed by the law, which serve as a mere copy and shadow, skia, of the heavenly things. Hebrews 8, 4b to 5a, that's where we are now. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
Those are two statements that belong back to back. The law came by Moses, it's true. No more true than grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. These are both incontrovertible truths. But grace and truth coming by Jesus Christ means that Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of the covenant between God and man. He, so it's a unilateral covenant. Grace and truth attributed to Jesus Christ means unilateral covenant fidelity. All the faithfulness required for this covenant was done by him, in other words. Him. Justification is by his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness unto us. So the gifts offered under the law that came via Moses were mere copies and shadows of the heavenly. The true gift, also known as true meaning heavenly, is the everlastingly and universally salvific and efficacious gift, which is the result of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, so that by his self-chosen poverty, which ultimately ended up in the death of a naked slave nailed to a cross. Through his poverty, you might become wealthy beyond imagination. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. So his is the gift that overflowed to the many, all, that is, by the grace of the one, one inclusive representative. For a passage I'm going to make clear I want to clarify this by a passage, if you'll turn to Romans 5 for a moment. But I want to lead up to it by saying this. His is the gift, God's gift, of Jesus Christ that overflowed to the many. And Paul uses that word, the many, to mean all of humanity. By the grace of the one... One, O-N-E, one singular, inclusive, representative man, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.15. In Hebrews 6.4, just to make the Hebrews connection, it's called the heavenly gift. Tes dorias, tes epuraniu, the heavenly gift, singular which the New Covenant community tastes. You know what you're doing right now? Tasting that heavenly gift right now, at this moment. Tasting the word, the good word of God. Hebrews 6, 5 also. To taste the good word of God is to taste the heavenly gift, which the New Covenant community tastes or experiences along with the sanctifying or completing companionship of the Holy Spirit, the goodness of God's word, and the powers of the coming age. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. So I, I said that to say, let's use this compatible passage on gifts and the gift with an emphasis on the gift. Once again, what separates me from, say, a neighbor that's never known of or has not had Jesus Christ revealed to him or her. What separates us? Nothing. 
except the revelation that I've received of the Son that they haven't yet received. What separates us in terms of reconciliation is that I'm reconciled to God and they're not, no. God has reconciled the world to himself. What separates us now is that because God has revealed his Son in me and to me and to you, we have tasted of this heavenly gift. They haven't yet. So, of course, they don't think much about the Bible, and they don't think much about the gospel, and they don't think much about Jesus unless they want to curse or whatever. And it's simply because we have tasted, and it's just an hors d'oeuvre. It's just a, a very tiny hors d'oeuvre compared to the full course that's coming in the messianic banquet in which all the world will be fed by the bread that is the flesh of Christ with life where death is destroyed and the shroud of death is removed in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. So Hebrews 6, 4 says we've tasted of this heavenly gift. Taste and see that what? The Lord is good. We've tasted and seen, and we see Jesus. We've tasted of the powers of the world to come, the powers of the coming age, the powers of future world. We've tasted of the good word of God. If the gospel is proclaimed correctly and the word is taught properly, you are tasting the good word of God, and to taste the good word of God is to taste the heavenly gift. It's just a limited taste. And it's a, it, promotes, it promotes an expectancy of a full meal, an expectation of a full meal. So you're eating an hors d'oeuvre, you're very careful, you're very polite, you got your tuxedo on or your gown and you're at a formal dinner party and you're tasting this hors d'oeuvre and it's bacon wrapped around celery or something. And, but your eye is looking over at the full course over here. It's a huge feast. That's us eating hors d'oeuvres. But now look at Romans 5. But the free gift, now he uses two different words for gifts here, if not three. Charisma here, eternal life through Jesus Christ is the gift. And Jesus Christ himself is the gift. So Paul says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. Adam's transgression is all out of proportion with the gift of that is Jesus Christ. You can't, there's not like an equal comparison. For if by the transgression of the one, one singular representative man, the many died. Who's the many? All. There's an interplay of all and many throughout Romans. Then how much more have the grace of God and the gift, hey, Doria, the same word used in Hebrews. Hey, Doria, the gift overflowed to enrich the many. If the transgression overflowed so that many died, how much more do you think the grace of God and the gift, Jesus Christ, overflowed to enrich the many, meaning with life? You have to put with life there as an understanding. By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, I love that phrase, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Why do I stand here? By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. 
The unconditional gift, this is again my translation that we developed in our RTE series, reading Romans with a light on or Romans the epistle. The unconditional gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. They're not proportionate to one another. In other words, Jesus did much more beneficially for man than what Adam did detrimentally to man. There's no comparison. It's all out of proportion. On the one hand, one sin, one act of transgression brought judgment resulting in the universal sentence of condemnation. Now, this is a translation as to sense and as to the sense of what Paul is writing about here in the context. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment resulting in the universal sentence of condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift coming after many trespasses, many trespasses, brought the universal sentence of acquittal. It's okay to use the word acquittal here for justification, sense of justification. For if, by the trespass of the one, death, that's with a capital D here, because it's talking about absolute death ultimately, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift, the gift of righteousness, reign in life, that is, with death dethroned, through the one, that's the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, all people, Paul makes it explicit here, it's all the sons of Adam. So through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people, all the sons of Adam. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many, meaning all, because there's an interplay of all and many in 5.18 and 5.19, were constituted, as the disobedience of one, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many, that is all, were constituted as righteous. In other words, made the righteousness of God in him. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, a kind of a mystical phrase, is better understood from Romans 5.19. Moreover, the Mosaic law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would actually increase. The medieval theologians like to use the word happy fault. Happy fault. Adam's happy fault. The fall of Adam was a happy thing. Why? Because through the fall of Adam, things are given to mankind that are far greater than would have been given had he not fallen. Does that say go out and fall? Of course not. The same thing here. The law was given that transgressions in the human race would increase. And you know by now, probably ad nauseum, my pizza illustration. Someone comes along and tells you it's wrong to want pizza and you 
always had kind of an, a great love for pizza, but you, didn't, you weren't obsessed with it. But now somebody told you it's wrong to eat it, you're obsessed with it. And so Paul said, I didn't know what it was like to lust until someone said, you shall not covet that. So the law was given that the transgression would increase, it says in Romans 5.20. But where sin superabounded because of the law that was hijacked by sin, as we've learned, grace superabounded much more. Thus, and I have in parentheses, thus bringing about a much greater good than if Adam had not disobeyed and if sin had not entered into the world and spread its plague throughout the human race. To the end that in verse 21, just as sin, with a capital S here, because it's Paul's view of sin as an eschatological supernatural enemy, or supranatural enemy, reigned in death, capital D, that is, over the whole human race, not just the heathen. So grace will reign through righteousness, that's God's saving justice, resulting in eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That has to be understood as eternal life for all humanity. Just as death was for all humanity, eternal life is for all humanity. And we'll see that again, we'll revisit that again in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death for all of humanity. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. His death, his obedience yielded, and his one act of righteousness yielded what? Justification and life for all. So that Romans 6.23, rarely quoted as a universal verse by those who follow this so-called Roman road, Romans road or whatever it's called, they fail to recognize that Paul is summing up the whole idea of universally the wages of sin is death, but Jesus tasted death for every person. And the gift of God is eternal life for every person. That's a, a, Paul is a phenomenally convinced universalist, whether you know that or not. So then, he's not a hopeful universalist. He is a convinced one. How about Ephesians 4, 7? Now to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The grace by which we're saved is according to the measure of the gift, which is Christ himself. Plus, spiritual gifts are given on that basis. Oh, since you got that, have this. Since you have this, Eternal life by gift, have a deep and abiding faith to go with it. Have the gift of helps. Have the gift of mercy. Have the gift of caregiving. Have the gift of counsel. Have the gift of wisdom. Have the gift of knowledge. Have the gift of knowing what to do when everybody else is falling apart. That's a gift of knowledge, a gift of wisdom. It's a gift. And so, Ephesians 4, 7 coupled with Hebrews 6.4 that we just looked at. Now, we are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. We have tasted and seen for ourselves that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. 
I just read that before we came into this in Psalm 34, 8, compared with 1 Peter 2, 3. We may say, this is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We may say that, Isaiah 25, 9. We may say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, in Psalm 118, 24. And again, in Isaiah 49, 8, this is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor. I will help you in the day of salvation. And still again, in 2 Corinthians 6, 2b, we may say of that passage in Isaiah 49a, 49, 8a, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Finally, we may consider once again the shouted praise of the innumerable company of temple servants who serve night and day in the heavenly temple. Salvation belongs to our God, the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. Fourth gear, we've been seeing the interplay of the words gifts and gift. Fourth gear, it's all right. Now, you don't remember those songs by the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and et cetera, do you? If you admit it, you're old. We've been seeing, or as some people say, you're old. You don't have to whisper. You're old. I looked in the mirror recently. Soft face said, you're old. Just ran uphill with heavy hands and didn't feel old. Got home, looked in the mirror, said, you're old. Didn't know that running up hills in Oakmont with weights. Know it now. Don't feel old now. But I'm old. But I ain't the old man. I'm the new man. This is how I talk to myself. So commit me, if you will. <laughs> So in seeing this interplay, gift with the Hebrews author's use of gifts and offerings made according to the law, if we see in this interplay of words, we see Jesus himself as the gift. What's the name of this series? Let me think. Oh yeah, we see Jesus. We see Jesus as the gift, as the something to offer. He must have something to offer. What's he going to offer? Himself. So the gift that Jesus, the archpriest, offered is God's unspeakable gift. It is something of value indeed, Robert Ruark, who wrote the book called Something of Value. For the wages of sin is absolute death. We're not just talking about physically keeling over. We're talking here about an absolute death where sin would have eventually paid its wages is in an absolute death that we'd have to look at something like hell, what people envision as hell. And it's absolute death. It's an eternal death. It's an endless death. Call it whatever you will, a spiritual death. Call it the absolute death, that's what I prefer to call it. The wages that sin, capital S-I-N, personified pays. It pays dues, it pays wages. So people work. Sin makes you work. 
Grace makes you free and purges your conscience from dead works. And after all the work you do for sin, he pays wages of, of death. But the gift of God offsetting that and more than offsetting that by infinity is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the exchange. So, the wages of sin, absolute death, but thanks be to God and to Jesus who tasted death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, just as the wages of sin is for all who sinned, that's all, Romans 3.23 and Romans 5.12, and if you say you have no sin, you're a liar in 1 John 1, 8 and one ten. So just as the wages of sin is for all who sinned, and that's all human beings, so the gift of God is for all human beings, since Jesus tasted, and tasted here means experienced the absolute death for all human beings. Hebrews 2.9. Say that you go through life bearing some burden you have for someone you love. You bear this burden. You're crushed under it because of your concern for them, because of your love for them. And you're kind of experiencing or tasting a tremendous burden for them. And it goes on, maybe, for your whole life because it's a daughter that you love or a son you love or a parent you love. And it's, it's an almost unendurable burden, but it's endurable only because you cast it upon the Lord. Imagine that multiplied by trillions endured by Jesus Christ on the cross. The wages of sin, everyone's sin. The wages of everyone's addiction, the wages of everyone's wrong decisions, criminal decisions, evil decisions, absolute death. He tasted death for everyone so that everyone can taste of the heavenly gift. What an exchange that is. the gift of eternal life, and everyone will. Because this keeps coming into play every time I teach seemingly lately. For as in Adam all dies, even so in Christ, all will be made alive. With what? With eternal life. All will taste or experience eternal life. For as Isaiah 40 and verse 5 says, quoted in Luke 3, 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And good translations will put for the word see, experience, as the Gingrich lexicon, one of the best of lexicons does. See there means experience. All flesh will experience the salvation of God, which means to be comprised of the one whose name means salvation and in whom all salvation is embodied, named Jesus. All will taste or experience eternal life then. The new covenant community, and this is where I'm going to close. This is fifth gear. It's all right. The new covenant community, the penultimate end denoted by redemption. Remember our first early teaching since we've been back. The penultimate end denoted by redemption. The new covenant community 
has a taste. What's the difference between me and the person that doesn't believe or doesn't have faith awakened in them or hasn't realized who Jesus is? I've had a taste. They haven't. Or if they have, they don't know what it is yet. There are people that have actually been flooded by the love of God in their hearts because God can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't have to take somebody who went down an aisle or said a prayer or even believed. He can pour out the love of God in a person's heart and the person starts to love everything. They love their art. They love their family. They love their wife. They love their kids. They love what they do. They love everybody all of a sudden. What's happened? The love of God was poured out in their hearts before they knew who poured it out. There's a lot of people that love life with a kind of joie de vivre that we don't even imagine that have had that happen to them and they, it hasn't caught up to them yet what or who poured that love out in their hearts yet. So you almost have to tell them, you know, God did that. That's the Holy Spirit who was what? Given to us. So, The New Covenant community, which is the penultimate end, not the final end, of redemption, has a taste, though only limited, limited, and expectant of the full meal. And we have this taste even now in this present evil age. Some days I'm overwhelmed. Some days, like the song, my heart is overwhelmed. I'm completely done in. I feel like I'm undone. I feel like it's a... and, and, And the Holy Spirit simply says, well, you haven't had a taste lately of my grace. And you take a taste of grace, and it's like better than Popeye eating spinach. You're ready to wind up and knock Brutus into the next hemisphere, so... We've dealt with the contrast of, you know, some of you, that's all you're going to remember. (laughs) If you comment on the message, you'll say, yeah, I remember Popeye. (laughs) So (laughs) we've dealt with the contrast of gifts and gift, which is implied in Hebrews 8.3 compared to Hebrews 6.4 and expounded in Paul. On top of that, on the fourth gospel, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, what did he say to her? If you knew the gift of God, that is, who is saying to you, give me water to drink? In other words, the gift of God is who is talking to you right now. If you knew the gift of God, first of all, he says to this woman, give me a drink of water. How does God talk to people? Directly. Does he say, hail thine woman of Samaria? No, he says, give me a drink of water. And she says, well, who are you? And he says, now, if you knew who I was, and if you knew the gift of God and that I'm him, you'd ask me for water, I'd give you water, and it would be eternal life. You see, that's John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God, that is, who is saying to you, give me a drink of water, you'd ask him, and he'd give you living water. The gift of God is none other than Jesus himself and with him. And I love how she says to him, well, we're expecting this Messiah to come. And um, he's the coming one. That's what everybody's all buzzing about. And Jesus said, yeah, that's me. Imagine you're talking to a guy 
who isn't entirely polite. He just says, give me some water. He's, why does he want water? Because he's thirsty. He's partaking of our humanity. So the gift of God is none other than Jesus himself and with him God's gift of his love experienced along with the sanctifying companionship of the Holy Spirit. Some companionships don't sanctify. Some companionships, as Paul says, evil companionships corrupt good morals. That's true across the board, whether you're Christian or just a moral person. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. But the Holy Spirit's companionship is a sanctifying one, meaning a whole-making one, one that makes you wholly human, fully human. And so, along with the gift of God, the gift of eternal life, and tasting that gift, we also taste of the companionship of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5, who was given to us. It's sanctifying companionship, because he is called Holy Spirit, and he makes us whole by pouring out the love of God in our hearts. Nothing else makes us whole. As the scripture says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us, given to us, given to us. The gift of God, the heavenly gift, the singular gift of the man from heaven, which we'll follow up on in future messages, hopefully, who is not only given, but gives himself. As our great archpriest, Jesus, like the priests of the Aaronic order, like the priests of the Aaronic order, has something to offer. Something to give. Unlike those priests, he is both the gift and the giver, the offering and the offerer, the sacrifice and the sacrificer, the lamb and the priest, even as he is the judge and the judged for us. So he even goes beyond Aaron, judge. Get it? Mark, you got it. 62 home runs, forget it. Those Astros, no, but it's going to be tough to beat them. Question. How could God invest his total love into his creation? How could he do it? Answer, by entering into it himself. And by suffering to bring it to its maximum glory as a manifestation of his grace that reigns through righteousness. Another way of saying a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is forever at home. Second Peter 3.13, thank you, Father. And may these truths really, truly reside in us. And may they result in us truly submitting to you as the Father of spirits. For submission to you means life. It means peace. It means joy. It means love. And allow this to dwell in us so that, Father, our lives may indeed be characterized as t- tasting this heavenly gift this heavenly hors d'oeuvre in expectation of the full messianic meal. Father, I thank you for those that have communicated the word so effectively in our Wednesday services, and I pray that our phalanx will access these messages to their great 
spiritual prophet. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for your kind attentiveness through all five years. And see ya.